fam? Feels good, right? right? <laughs> yeah, I know it, dude. Yeah. And without further ado, we broadcasting live from CA to M. The funny thing is embarrassing because it's just like so, it's too much now. Yeah. I mean, it was too much to begin with, but still. But it's just, it's bad and it's getting worse. I just, I feel, I'm like disgusted by him. Oh yeah, me too. Did he see Snoop talking yep. shit? <laughs> I love Snoop Dogg. That was awesome. He problematic, but he's tight. <laughs> Snoop, I saw Lana Del Rey talk shit. Yeah. And Ki- Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Captain America. And then Kim got mad and I think she unfollowed all those people on Instagram and like <laughs> Relax. I seen someone uh, someone she posted something like his new album is gonna drop Black Friday. Mm-hmm. And uh, like top comment was like keep it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want that shit. Yeah, I don't. Do want we that really shit. need another album by him? Like it just one just came out and it wasn't that great. People already forgot about it. Name one song from that album. <laughs> I can't. I uh, can't. Did you see his performance? And not the speech, not the rant, but like when he was wearing the Perrier bottle. Uh, yeah, I wasn't mad at it because I fucking love Perrier. <laughs> <laughs> but that song too. Like I don't really get the hype on that song. I think it's whatever. Yeah, I don't know. And I that hate is. that kid. Who is that guy? Uh, fuck. I literally just had this conversation with Hoal earlier. It's something stupid, like little pun. Oh, little pump. Oh yeah, there you go, little pump. <laughs> little pun would be that, that's that's my <laughs> rap name. <laughs> little pun. <laughs> Baby Perrier, that's my rap name. <laughs> Um, yeah. I really like how Snoop just, he really just doesn't give a fuck. It gets him into trouble, but also, yeah. like, I, I'm here for it. Because he's old now. He don't give a fuck. Yeah. And I don't think he gave a fuck to begin with, really. Yeah, true. Candace okay. Owens. Candace Owens can go fuck herself. Oh, yeah. She's she, hella some, extra. Somehow, disgusts me more than her because the, yeah. I've, I've only known her as terrible. You know? Yeah. Like, whereas, <laughs> was so much better than this. I Did you see that tweet going viral that was like, remember when, performances were like this and it was um, oh yeah runaway yeah yeah and shit's so sick he's wearing the red octobers r.i.p r.i.p what happened i I think that he never really recovered after his mom died maybe is that it i feel like after that he really went off the rocker it's just it's bad and it's it's doing a lot of damage too because it's yeah and i think he's on drugs right he's He's on, or he's off his his prescribed drugs. He said something the other day, like I would have responded, but I was on drugs. Yeah, he was medicated because you know he's on he's on like uh, antidepressants and possibly like antipsychotics. I don't want to speculate, but yeah, that's sad. Mama, 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 mama. I know that song's so sweet. What happened? I used to think about, I used to listen to that song after my tia passed because he says, uh, or last night I saw you in my dream. Yeah. Because I used to dream about her and I would always be like, oh, I'm going to dream about my aunt. And it's like, that's so cute. And I fucking, I'm so mad at him. And now you can't listen to that song <laughs> Yeah, anymore. it makes me so mad. Yeah. Ah, R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, my brother was telling me he went to New Orleans for Mardi Gras back in like 2000. 2000- the year before Katrina. Mm-hmm. So he was telling me a story because he went with his three guy friends. And one of them is pretty ridiculous. 
and he always like goes real extra for when they're all mm-hmm. gonna get together to party. So what's, they, what's that guy's name? Okay, yeah, I know who this so, is. Yes, yeah. so um, he was telling them like, hey, I'm gonna have beads shipped to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> like don't worry about packing beads and then he told them can you each pitch in 50 bucks or something ridiculous and my brother was like dude why would we like can we go get a bag for like 10 bucks cents. yeah <laughs> like do we really all need to pitch in 50 bucks and he's like no man this shit's gonna be crazy like we need to have like extras i don't want to be going to the stores yeah and i don't want to be worrying about packing that i'm just gonna have it shipped directly to our hotel so we don't have to worry about it and my brother was like okay whatever like they're just like whatever just give this full of money he said when they checked into the hotel the the staff was like oh are you are you whatever and he was like, yeah, I, I should have a package here, right? And she was like, yeah, you got a package. And it was like a fucking giant box. And when they opened it, there was like a million fucking beads in there. I thought you were going to say a girl jumped out. No, my brother was like, what the fuck are we doing? And then he said, you don't even need to bring beads. Like when you're there, like everybody has them and is throwing them everywhere. That's what I was thinking when you started the story. I was like, yes. oh, is that's a thing you're supposed to take? No, <laughs> May. It's just this guy's so extra. Oh, my God. It's so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel good. I, I don't. I feel like I should be doing something or. Or I've done something or. What happened? Whatever it was, it was wrong or is wrong or will be wrong. Is there any- I don't know what to do about it. All right, so what's going on with Cardi? Cardi Bacardi. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bacardi! So-, <laughs> so the tea is that Cardi was involved in some sort of brawl at a strip club a few yeah. weeks back. I thought it was last night. No, 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 no. This is okay. from a little while ago. All right. From what I understand, she heard that some of these women, some of the dancers were messing with her mans with Offset. Oh. So she took it upon herself. Yes. (laughs) She took it upon herself to confront them. And one thing led to another and there was an all out brawl. Okay. That's two fights for Cardi in 2018. (laughs) That we know of. I'm sure there are more. Seriously. Actually, I think there is another one that was like at a bar or something. Same thing. She went after somebody who was fucking with Offset. It's going to be a long life, homegirl. So, uh, yeah. So then today she turned herself in. I saw her walking out looking bomb. She yeah, her outfit was good. She looked like how Marilyn Monroe looked when after she married Joe DiMaggio at the courthouse. Like, <laughs> she, looked she did look like that. Incredible. That's like that's how Loki. If I ever got married in a courthouse, I want to dress exactly like Barty was dressed. <laughs> Cardi for her arraignment <laughs> yeah she looked great her wig was popping yep yep and her outfit yeah that camel suit that's that's the mark of uh of money right there camel <laughs> tones <laughs> money or and or assault charges <laughs> you bitch wanna party with cardi <laughs> <laughs> i bet cardi gets guys is what i was thinking you think yeah, I'm sure guys try to get at her, don't you? But you think she's fucking around on Offset? No, I don't think she's fucking around, but I get, I bet, I understand, like, Offset is a famous rapper. Girls are always going to be throwing themselves at him. Yeah. 
So don't guys throw themselves at her too? Like, why is she? Yeah, that's true. But he's acting on it. I think that's the problem. Oh, oh, he's cheating on her? Yeah. Like, I think that that's the thing that with the strip club, like she her, she found out that he was fucking this girl and he what she went specifically to that strip club to, to fuck her. her. Yeah. Oh, damn. That's, I kind of like I would never I, I never would wish people to be violent with each other. But I do respect Cardi for being real, though. <laughs> <laughs> not today bitch. <laughs> i'm inheriting those gold chains and that turtleneck well i don't know that's fine that's funny i guess there's not much more to that nope it's a developing story guys it's a developing story we'll give you more info we should have a sound effect you know like one of those like do 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 like yeah. a <laughs> like a telegram is coming yes in. yes <laughs> That's sick. That would be real sick. For like developing news. Yes. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, my name is May. And my name is Stephanie. And this is the Drama Club. This is the podcast all about scandals from celebrities, rappers, people. Actors, actresses, athletes, fake girlfriends. (laughs) Real girlfriends. Also real girlfriends, yes. (laughs) Too many girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Not, not enough girlfriends. Not enough girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Now I'm going to tell you something that happened to you when you were six years old. Oh, uh, uh, you ready? All right. Yeah, I'm ready. Are okay, you ready? Cool. Yeah. You ready, B? Are you ready, B? You on time? What does he say? All the time, five. You on what? Uh, you on point? You on point, point tip? Tip. All the time, five. Mm-hmm. You on point tip? That would have been cool if I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. All right, all right. It's my main topic today. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I've come to realize that I like to do these pseudo-political crime stories. Yeah. Yeah. They're always really interesting to me because the criminal acts themselves are insane, but usually the people involved have motives that are so far-fetched and bizarre that I can't help but want to know everything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that especially like the Patty Hearst thing, it's... It's not like this happened yesterday, so it's nice to get, like, all of the information, you know? Yeah, totally, because you haven't heard about it in a while. Yeah. Yeah, and so I realized also I've hit a couple decades with the Manson family in the 60s and mm-hmm. Patty Hearst in the 70s, so I thought it was only appropriate that I keep it moving on to the 80s. Hey. So today I'm going to talk about the drama surrounding Jodie Foster and the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. I am super pumped for this. I'm so happy you're doing this. So this is the one that I chose to do as a twofer. (laughs) And like three hours into it and eight pages later, I was like not even scratching the surface. And I was like, this is not appropriate for a twofer. This is a solo topic for sure. No. And also, I'm not even going to get into all of every person involved because uh-huh. I, it's for the sake of time, I can't. So Jody has some personal drama that I'd like to talk about, but I okay. really don't talk about it. But the two big things are, yes, Jodie Foster, quote, came out at the Golden Globes in 2013 yeah. in a highly criticized speech where she never actually said the words gay or lesbian. Uh-huh. And number two, yes, Jodie Foster is friends with and has defended Mel Gibson. stating that she can't walk away from a friend while they're struggling. So I just want to get those two things out of the way because (laughs) I'm not trying to ignore them. But for purposes of this story, they're not really that important. Right. Okay. 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 All right. So that leaves those are those are possible quickies in the future. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. 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 
All right, so Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster, she is an actress. <laughs> <laughs> Among she, other things, she's also Yeah, she's a also director. a scholar, a director, yeah. producer, yeah. Jodie has won two Academy Awards, three BAFTA Awards, two Golden Globes, a Screen, Ac- Screen Actors Guild Award, and the Cecil B. DeMille Honorary Golden Globe Award. Woo. So basically, she's the Everything. top of the top of the top. A- yeah, she's- she is the creme de la creme. Yeah. She was born November 19th, 1962 in Los Angeles, California. Oh, she's like she's like my parents' age. Uh-huh. She's, she's not as old. She's just been famous for so long. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You think she's like 100, but she's not. <laughs> Her family was uh, an old money kind of family, mm-hmm. and her roots trace back to the Mayflower. Oh, the, mm-hmm. are those the Fosters, or is mm-hmm. that like her on her mom's side? No, on her dad's side. Oh, cool. Her dad was a successful real estate broker as well, but like I said, they had old family money, so mm-hmm. no one really needed to work, but they yeah. were all very hardworking people. Okay. That's usually how rich people get rich and stay rich. Yeah. Generational wealth, baby. Yep. Her mother was a publicist for movie producer Arthur Jacobs, who's mm-hmm. known for producing the Planet of the Apes series <gasps> in the 60s. Dr. Oh Doolittle, Play It Again, Sam, and Tom Sawyer. So he's big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, I was obsessed with Planet of the Apes when I was a kid. Yeah, those old, that old school series is really funny, too, because the actors in those monkey suits. <laughs> yes, they're yeah. so good. <laughs> Jody began modeling as a child as early as three years old, and she was in a couple Coppertone ads. Oh. She was characterized by her teachers and coworkers as being a gifted child. She learned to read by age three and became fluent in French and conversational in Spanish, German, and Italian all before 10. What the fuck? Yeah, she's hella fucking smart, dude. Dude. Yeah. Is she the smartest actress, actor, actor? She's she ha- up there. She's, she's up gotta there. be up yeah. there. Yeah. Ooh, I would love to see like a a trivia host like talk show of smart mm-hmm. celebrities just like who could fucking win. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sick. Um okay, she started acting by the age of 5 through the connections her mother had with her job in the mm-hmm. producing world. Mm-hmm. Her mom also managed the acting career of her brother Buddy. Mm-hmm. So her brother got a job on the sitcom Mayberry RFD in 1968 and Jody got a spot on there too. Okay, cool. Jody kept working in advertisements and appeared in minor roles in over 50 television shows while she was a child. Wow. Yeah, 50? Jody. 50? 50. Wow. Jody and her brother became the breadwinners of the family during this time, and her mom and dad began fully devoting themselves to managing their children's careers. Mm-hmm. Jody started appearing in films for Disney in the 1970s, so at eight years old. And made her feature film debut in the film Napoleon and Samantha in 1972. Okay. During the production of this film, Jody suffered a very serious injury. The story involves a main boy who has a pet lion. Yeah. And one day on set, Jody was mauled by one of the substitute lions. No fucking way. Yep. She said, I was walking ahead of the lion and he was on an invisible leash that was piano wire. He apparently got sick of me being slow, so he picked me up, held me sideways, and shook me like a doll from his mouth. What the fuck? She said, I was in shock, and I thought it was an earthquake. I turned my head and saw the entire crew and cast running in the other direction. His trainer ran up and yelled, drop it, and he dropped me. It. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's some shit. 
The incident has left Jody with permanent scars on her back and stomach and logically a lifelong cat phobia. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yesterday, Luca had <laughs> he had a uh, a flashlight in his mouth. <laughs> and so he turned it on and like he was walking and he was flashing the light at me like in my eyeball and I was like drop it and he would not <laughs> drop it. <laughs> Dude, there's this crazy there's this insane movie with the um, Melanie Griffith's mom, Tippi Hedren, and I think a, a baby Melanie Griffith is in it. And it's all about them, like, in a wildlife preserve with lions and stuff. Ooh. I want to say it's called Roar. And it's terrifying. It's all, like, real lions that they had been living with. I think Tippy's husband at that time was, like, a lion trainer or something. And, like, it's it's one of the most terrifying movies Yeah. Ever. Why the fuck? Why? <laughs> So oh, yeah, in nine- it's called Roar. You guys watch the trailer. It, it'll blow your mind. R- they really la- lived with those lions? Yeah, they, they really lived with those lions. And they were like, we're going to make this movie. So they made the movie over like the course of a year or something. And there's just they're like living with lions. And there's like scary. Mo- it's insane. Fuck that. In 1973, Jody was in the movie Tom Sawyer, produced by her mom's botsman. And in 1974, she scored a spot in Martin Scorsese's Alice doesn't live here anymore. How do you say Scorsese? I don't say it right. No, that's that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I think like if you if you were in Italy, you'd say Scorsese or something oh, okay. like that. But we say Scorsese here. Okay, cool. Alice doesn't live here anymore. I've never seen that movie. I've seen it. It's good. I thought, okay. but I thought her first movie was Taxi Driver. No. Okay. Cool. Foster largely credits her childhood acting work as shaping her work ethic for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. She also largely values the work she did in commercials and small film and TV roles as helping shape her as an actress and, again, as a hard worker. She has spoken out about how ads are invaluable and hates when other actors or other people label that type of work as lowbrow. Oh, well, I mean, there's good ads and there's bad ads. Right. But she just thinks that there's a lot to learn as an actor there and people shouldn't write it off. Right. Okay. Around this time, Jody's tiger mom started worrying that Jody's career would fizzle off once she entered adolescence and adulthood, since that happens so often to child mm-hmm. actors. So in an effort to ensure continued work and a lengthy career, she began to push Jody to act in films for more adult audiences. That's that's strange that her mom, her mom? did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you usually get the the parents trying to milk the child, you know, child star thing for as long as possible. Yeah, but I think that's usually parents who aren't actually in the biz. Oh, yeah. And yeah, her yeah. mom worked for a producer, so she knew this shit, you know? Right. She was in it for the long haul. Okay, so that brings us to 1976, when Martin Scorsese cast Jody in the most important role of her career up to this point and contender for maybe up to even now in his film Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. In this film, Jody plays a young teenage sex worker. The Los Angeles Welfare Board initially opposed 12-year-old Jody's involvement in the film, but Governor Pat Brown intervened and had a psychiatrist from UCLA evaluate Jody to confirm whether she could handle the role. Mm-hmm. The psychiatrist ended up clearing her, but she still had an assigned social worker on set and her older sister was a stand-in for any sexually suggestive scenes. That's um, that's pretty comforting to me that they had all those uh, checkpoints. Yes. You know? Imagine you're that psychiatrist, though, and you, you're here to, they're like, okay, you need to interview this 12-year-old girl or something. Because she's going like, to play a sex worker. 
Right. But like you show up and it's Jodie Foster and she's like speaking to you in 13 languages. And like, <laughs> <laughs> So where did you get your degree from? What was yeah. your thesis on? They probably discussed your thesis. And right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in regards to all of the drama surrounding her role, Jodie later commented, quote, I hate the idea that everybody thinks if a kid's going to be an actress, it means she has to play Shirley Temple or someone's little sister. She said that at the time. She said that at the time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which I get, but also, like, I, I'm more with you. I think it was great of them to ensure that level of protection for her because she was a child. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, especially on this podcast, we've heard so many times where Hollywood doesn't take care of its actors, including mm -hmm. child actors. So I wasn't necessarily mad at the extra steps they took to make sure she was mentally protected from the serious nature of the role. Yeah. Maybe it was to cover their own ass, too, but still. Yeah. Jodie developed a bond with her co-star, Robert De Niro, who ended up sort of mentoring her throughout her youth and said he saw a very serious potential in her. Wow. She said this role was life-changing for her. It was the first time she had to create a character that wasn't just herself. Mm -hmm. The first time she realized that acting was a craft and a real career rather than just a hobby or a job. Mm-hmm. Which is just like the most basic schmasic recipe for what separates great acting from good acting. <laughs> right. It's like what Tiger Woods just, you know, he just started working yeah. out. All, yeah. all he did was <laughs> run a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> the film did fantastic. It's regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. It won at Cannes in May and Jody impressed journalists when she acted as the French interpreter at the film's press conference. Wow. I know. <laughs> It was both a critical and commercial success and earned Jodi her first Academy Award nomination as well as two BAFTAs. So those are the two she won. Yeah, that's 12. crazy. It's preserved in the National Film Registry as well. So baby Jodi's thriving. She did it because this movie would successfully cross her over from child actress to adult mm -hmm. star. Mm -hmm. And she's 13 and years old. And she picks up a mentor in Robert De Niro along the <laughs> Could way. Could you imagine? Yeah. And, and I bet Scorsese loved her too. He yeah. passed her twice, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, so it's like things are looking up for little yeah. Jody, right? She's just <laughs> fucking doing the best. But, you know, after you get mauled by a lion, like after that, like <laughs> you can only go up from there. <laughs> Jody kept it moving in big name movies, including Bugsy Malone, Echoes of a Summer, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, in which she stars opposite our friend Martin Sheen and Freaky Friday. Then she oh, spent yeah. the year 1977 in France and starred in some French films, including Moi, Fleur Bleu. Okay. I didn't know that she did some French movies. Isn't that so fucking cool. cool? I yeah. know. Fuck okay. you, Jodie Foster. <laughs> <laughs> You're way too cool. What the fuck? <laughs> then, when she was 17 years old, full-blown movie star, A-list actress, queen of her craft, Jodie Foster was like, you know what? I'm going to go to college. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get my education on. Yeah, yeah. What <laughs> the fuck? I hate these overachievers. Y'all make me feel so lazy. Uh, where did she go? Yale? Heart oh uh, yeah, Yale. Yeah. This mm -hmm. yeah, this is crazy. She's like <laughs> I've uh, pretty much she by twelve she had already achieved the heights uh, I'll never achieve. Nominated <laughs> for an Academy Award. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, you know what? Let's throw some D's on that bitch. Yeah, why not? So, by D's I mean degrees. Hell yeah. <laughs> So let's see. Yes. So in 1980, at the age of 18, she enrolled full time at Yale, like May said. She was also worried, like her mom, about a transitional phase into adulthood because she thought that she still looked very young, even at 18. Yeah. 
So being well aware that most child stars, again, are unable to successfully continue their careers into adulthood, she decided it would be good to take a little break to let her grow up outside of the public eye for a bit. Yeah, that's smart. That's super smart. Yeah. Well, she's fucking... A in, genius. In Mensa. So. Yeah. <laughs> Jody said that college was a really wonderful time for her. It was a wonderful time of self-discovery, and it helped her appreciate acting more and more and realize that it was what she really wanted to do. Cool. So now we're at the point in Jody's life where the drama unfolds, so I want to give some background on John Hinckley as well. Okay. Fuck that fool. Fuck him. <laughs> John Warnock Hinckley Jr. was born seven years earlier than Jody on May 29th, 1955 in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Okay. He grew up in Texas and his family was also wealthy, just like Jody's. His yeah. father was president of World Vision United States, which is one of the largest emergency relief community development organizations in the USA. Interesting. Yeah, this company incorporates Christian beliefs into their developmental work and they believe that evangelization is an inseparable and integral part of developmental work. Wow. Okay. So he grew up in a very Christian household. Yeah. Yeah. So they're called they're colonizers. Mm hmm. <laughs> His father was also president of the Vanderbilt Energy Corporation and owned a small family business that dealt in this little chemical substance. We know uh, oil. <laughs> So they were fucking cha-ching. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, when you said his full name, I was like, that sounds like fancy as fuck. Yeah, that's a real fucking name right there. Uh, John had two older siblings, a sister, Diane, and brother, Scott. Scott seemed to be the overachieving older brother type. Oh, fuck Scott, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He graduated from Vanderbilt University and became VP of their dad's oil company after graduating. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that John had kind of a little chip on his shoulder. I'm sure. And tried constantly to fill the shoots of his dad and brother. Uh Uh-huh. John did okay in school. He was on the soccer team and basketball team. He was class president and active in uh, after-school activities. After graduating high school, he was an on-and-off-again college student at Texas Tech University. Okay. And after about six unsuccessful, drawn-out years, he ended up dropping out. Okay. He then moved to Los Angeles in 1975 with the hope of becoming a songwriter, and that didn't pan out for him either. Ooh, you know, sounds uh, sounds a little like Manson. Yeah, sounds a little like someone who's... Sounds, sounds Manson-y to me. <laughs> <laughs> Please, God, stay away from anybody who sounds manson <laughs> Could you imagine? Anyways, uh, during this time... John would write letters to his parents with tales of misfortune and pleaded with them to provide for him financially, which they did. Yeah. So John's parents would like give him money, but also would like they would kind of do it like a crutch. Like they'd be like, this is the last time or they'd be like, you need to figure this out on your own because like his older brother and sister were doing fine. And his mom and dad were both hard workers. But John always kind of used the clutch of his parents for money and stuff. And they weren't cool with that. Now, why didn't he... Why wouldn't they just like give him a job, like his brother give him a job? You know, I just don't know. like you, now you work here now, uh-huh. and, and then the, I feel like that keeps him on the straight and narrow, and he's earning his own way. Like I think that he would make promises to them, like I'm gonna go do this, you know, like it's oh gonna be yeah, cool. like I think he, it's also him. Or but. I'm sure I, I bet this conversation happened. Like, give me a year in LA. If I don't mm-hmm. make it as a songwriter, I'll come. I'll work come in back. The, yeah, yeah, totally. Allegedly. 
when he was in LA, he would also write to his parents about a girlfriend, which mm. turned out to be a fabrication. <gasps> Ooh. And that's how John Hinckley Jr. became Manti Teo. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> I was going to say, and what's her name? Lenai Kakua. <laughs> Aloha. Aloha. So after a few oh my years, God, your hair looks short like that. You know, like it looks like you have a bob. Oh you yeah, have a bob. Oh dude, I wish. I it wish I could cute. pull it off. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so after a few years of trying to be out in LA on his own, he eventually became broke and moved back in with his parents in late 1976. Mm-hmm. During the late 70s, when he moved back in with his parents, John was put on antidepressants and tranquilizers to deal with his emotional issues. Around this time, he also started gaining an interest in weaponry and began buying and practicing using handguns. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of Manson-y. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if Manson had, like, a fascination with weapons. He was just a psychopath. It's, um, it's Manson adjacent, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then, in 1976, the movie Taxi Driver came out. Hell, yeah. And Hinckley became obsessed. Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) I saw reported that he testified that he saw the movie 15 times in theaters. Wow. Yeah. Now, you know, this is this movie is great. It's a classic, but it's also a psychological thriller. So I don't think anyone would benefit from watching it 15 times in a row. Yeah. And another thing, people... I, I'm sure there are movies that I've seen 15 times, but oh, me not, too. not in the theater. No, hell no. You know? <laughs> the hell? All right. So the watered down plot of Taxi Driver, for those who haven't seen it, mm-hmm. is that Robert De Niro's unstable, isolated and depressed character, Travis Bickle, slowly unravels and plots to assassinate a presidential candidate. If you haven't seen this movie, go watch it and then go hug a friend. And if you don't have any friends, maybe don't watch it. And also, um, don't watch it 15 times. No, don't watch it 15 (laughs) times at all, please. So John appears to have a connection with the character of Travis Bickle Mm -hmm. on several levels, which is very scary because Travis Bickle as a character is one of the most frightening film characters of all time. Yes, because he's real. He's not he's a monster, but he's a human. You know, that's what that it, isn't. It, doesn't it remind you of like Patrick Bateman in American Psycho? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like, like the fucking like the villain next door, like like John Hamm in Mad Men. Yes. Yes. Like it's somebody who you could trust and mm-hmm. see yourself falling, falling for, you know, not yeah. falling for, but like you would fall for it. Right. Right. Hinkley also became obsessed with Jodie Foster, who, as we all know, played a child sex worker in the film. Mm hmm. So he was uh, around 19. He was older than her. Yes, he was like 19. Okay. Hinkley found out that Jody had enrolled in Yale University and he moved from his parents' house to Connecticut to stalk her. So this was years after. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Damn, so his obsession has just been building. Yes. Okay. Um. I think what happened is that he he told his parents he wanted to become a writer because he found out that she was in the writing program and uh, he begged his dad like for tuition mm-hmm. and his dad said something like, I'm going to give you the tuition, but you need to like stand on your own two feet. Don't come back or something like that. Right. So it was almost like kicking him out almost. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and his dad later laments that a lot. So I feel bad for him. Yeah. 
John was able to enroll in Yale and tracked Jody down to a writing class, which he also quickly signed up for. He was also able to locate her dorm room and he began slipping Jody poems and messages under her door. Oh, what the fuck? He also found out her phone number and he began to telephone stalk her and would repeatedly call her on the phone. No, uh, I wonder what those poems. Ooh, there's some of them are online. Oh, no. Yeah, they're scary. He basically wouldn't leave her alone and tried to get in contact with Jody and within close proximity as often as possible. Okay. Psychiatrists later diagnosed Hinckley with uh, suffering from erotomania. Uh-huh. This is a delusional disorder and paranoid condition characterized by delusions of another person being infatuated with him or her. The mm-hmm. core idea is that the sufferer believes unshakably that the other person is secretly in love with them. Oh, my God. Do I yeah. have erotomania? <laughs> me too, man. <Mary. laughs> I knew Leo was trying to tell me something. John Hamm? Oh, my God. (laughs) They often also believe that their admirer is sending them messages through innocuous events. Oh, no. So John truly believed that Jody loved him. Mm -hmm. This condition also, interestingly, is most common in women who are shy and dependent. The object of the delusions is most often someone unattainable due to high social or financial status, marriage, or just disinterest. Yeah. Oh, God. This is terrifying. Yeah. Oh, you want to hear the kicker? Yeah. In men with this condition, we mostly see it exhibited in a violent or stalker-like way. Of course we do. Uh Uh-huh. Of course we do. This is unfortunately a disorder that lends itself to celebrity targets and... More recently, I saw it reported that a man suffering from this became so obsessed with Justin Bieber that he plotted Justin Bieber's murder oh, after shit. after Justin failed to respond to his letters. Wow. I know, that's scary. Uh, do you remember some, um, I, I want to say she was a teenager from The Voice or something, who was no. killed last year in Orlando, I think it was. She was what? There was like a meet and greet line and one of her fans like went <gasps> right up to her and shot her in the face. I know who you're talking about. Yes. I wonder if that was something like this. I forgot all about that. We should put that on the list. Yeah. That's scary. So Jody was obviously not having it. Mm-hmm. She at least twice told John verbally that she was not interested in him. And like I said, Jody Foster doesn't identify as heterosexual. Mm-hmm. She's currently married to a woman, mm-hmm. which makes me wonder how dating was for Judy in her youth because she was famous, beautiful, and smart. Yeah. I bet she had guys all over her and girls. Oh, well, I bet the dating pool, I bet at Yale, like it was easy to find somebody, you know. Hell yeah. That you just sort of like connect with. Like, yeah. That shit must have been fun. Hell yeah. <laughs> What'd you go to college for, Jody? To Mac. <laughs> I have gone to college for a Mac. <laughs> but if you were Jody, you'd say it in French. Yeah, fucking bitch. <laughs> do Mac it. Yeah. So young Jodie Foster was not focused on John Hinckley Jr. or probably any man. Mm -hmm. However, what Jodie probably overlooked as an overzealous fan or man shooting his shot was actually the unraveling of Hinckley's mental instability. So was she, did she panic at all? Was she like, did she tell like campus security, listen, there's this crazy guy or what? Yes. Okay. But she wasn't, I don't think she thought, as so what i write right here is at a later press conference somebody asked jody could you see any sort of connection between john and the attack and her response was how many hinkley's do you know 
Yeah. Like, yeah. I think she didn't, I, she couldn't believe that this would happen. You know, like, right. who? Of who course not. Could? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Or I, I wonder know. if, I, I bet she had a lot of fans, like a lot of fan mail. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't think, I think like she just thought like, ah, oh, this guy, you know, yeah, yeah, probably yeah. just was annoyed, but maybe yeah. didn't, obviously nobody could believe that this was going to happen. I'm just wondering if she would have been, if she would have been scared of him. I think she was. Okay. Hinkley began to fantasize about more and more ways to get Jody's attention because obviously she wasn't giving him any. Mm-hmm. Some of his earlier ideas included hijacking an aircraft or sitting in front of her dorm room and committing suicide in front of her. What the fuck? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, he plays D.B. Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, though, he decided to impress Jodie Foster, much like the main character in Taxi Driver, by setting up an assassination plot of the American president. He thought that by orchestrating and conducting this historical event, he would become Jody's equal and therefore appeal to her in a way he hadn't previously. So first, Hinckley stalked President Jimmy Carter from state to state. But while he was in Nashville, he was arrested on a firearms offense. At the time, the FBI didn't connect Hinckley's arrest to the president in any sort of way. And Mm -hmm. so the Secret Service was never notified of Hinckley's existence. Oh, no. Because then they would have placed him on a list and on their radar. Yeah. The Secret Service would have been briefed on his character and they'd be looking out for him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Jimmy Carter's still in office, but then Hinckley becomes broke again. You know, from all the fucking stalking. (laughs) Yeah. So he briefly moves back in with his parents. Okay. His his parents were very, very concerned for John. This is back in Texas. Yeah, now he's back in Texas. During this period of living with his parents he overdosed on antidepressant medication wow okay so he was placed in psychiatric treatment and treatment for depression by his parents Mm -hmm. also um john's parents wrote a book following everything about dealing with their son's mental illness and everything that happened Mm -hmm. and i it's actually if anybody's read it let me know because that sounds quite excellent hella interesting (laughs) unfortunately nothing was working for john There are pictures floating around of him during this time where he starts taking selfies of himself holding guns up to his temple. And allegedly, he liked to play Russian roulette around this time as well. Wow. So he's clearly a very unstable person. Yeah. And then in 1981, Ronald Reagan was elected president of the United States. Okay. The day before he attempted to assassinate the president, John wrote a letter to Jodie Foster. His le- I'm sorry, not the day before, the day of. Mm-hmm. His letter stated, quote, Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written an hour before I leave the Hilton Hotel. Wow, okay. Hinkley continued, Jody, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love. But you know what's insane? I, I kind of, I understand the the notion, even if it's crazy, like I'm gonna do something to be to become her equal, right? You know, people do that, right? People do that, but I don't understand why he thought this was it. Because he's 
just what, fucking crazy. Where's the break there? You know, I have no idea. Huh. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, because people will like try to get a better job yeah, or yeah. how many times have we seen that in movie films? Right. You know? Now, 19-year-old Jody had sent the last couple of notes she received to Hinckley to her dean. This is what I was getting at. Okay. And the dean had forwarded them to the Yale Police Department, but no one was able to track him down. So I think Jody was at least slightly concerned, but maybe mostly for her own safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His and, notes, but he was ahead. he was still enrolled at Yale or no? No. Okay. His notes and their frequency were obviously showing an abnormal level of interest in Jody, and since he knew where she was staying, she had to start to try and protect herself. Mm-hmm. But in no way could she have known that he was going to try and pull off what he did. Like mm-hmm. she said, "How many Hinkleys do you know?" Yeah. On March 28, 1981, John Hinckley took a bus to Washington, D.C. The Washington Star had published President Reagan's schedule for the day, and he decided it was time to put his plan into action. Hmm. On March 30, 1981, President Ronald Reagan delivered a luncheon address to the AFL-CIO, or the American Federation of Labor, Mm -hmm. at the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C., which at the time was considered one of the safest hotels in the area because they specifically created an enclosed secure passageway literally called the President's Walk. Yeah. President Reagan entered the building through this entrance at around 1.45 p.m., smiling and waving to surrounding media and citizens. The president was not wearing a bulletproof vest on this day because his only public exposure of the day would be the 30 feet between his limo and the hotel. Do they usually wear bulletproof vests? Yes. Wow. His agents were also not required to wear (laughs) (laughs) bulletproof vests for this reason on this day. Okay. I didn't read anything indicating that Hinckley had any sort of knowledge regarding that information, Mm -hmm. but these are the minor, later critical mistakes that were made on this day by the Secret Service in ensuring President Reagan's safety. How does Trump... How is there a a bulletproof vest that's Trump size? (laughs) They had to get two bulletproof vests (laughs) or one of those extenders like on the airplane for his sides. Or they don't put a bulletproof vest they on that motherfucker. No, they're just like, fuck it. The Secret Service is like, you know, we stopped that program. <laughs> but, you know, you always see that when politicians do that thing where they take off their, when the male ones, like, take off their jackets and they roll up their sleeves and stuff. And, like, yeah, I feel like I never see anything bulky, you know? I don't think it's, like, the bulletproof vest that you, you're you thinking of. Like, the, like a cop. Yeah, like the big ass, bulky ass yeah, ones. I yeah. think they got like hella special ones for the president. Yeah. Oh, okay. No one saw Hinckley as behaving unusual on that day while waiting on the street. Mm-hmm. The Secret Service was actually monitoring another man in the crowd who appeared fidgety and agitated while waiting for the president to exit the building. Oh, I feel bad for that guy. He just had allergies or something. He <laughs> <Like, laughs> was just nervous to see the president. Yeah. At 2.27 p.m., after delivering his speech, President Reagan exited the hotel through the president's walkway. Hinckley was waiting within the crowd of citizens, hoping to catch a glimpse of the president. Mm -hmm. The Secret Service had extensively screened all of the attendants of the speech, but allowed a completely unscreened group of citizens to stand within 15 feet of the president behind a simple rope line. Wow. This velvet rope is going to protect him? Yeah. They later called this their most colossal mistake Uh, of the day, obviously. 
President Reagan walked directly in front of Hinckley, at which point Hinckley pulled out a ROM RG.22 revolver and fired six shots within 1.7 seconds. Mm-hmm. Is that 22 millimeter? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. I don't know anything about guns. The, f- the first bullet hit White House Press Secretary James Brady in the head. Fuck. The second bullet hit District of Columbia police officer Thomas Delahanty in the back of his neck as he turned to protect the president. Fuck. The third bullet hit a window of a building directly across the street. As soon as the first shot is heard, Secret Service agent in charge Jerry Parr quickly pushed President Reagan's head down and threw him into the limousine. And Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy placed himself in the line of fire by spreading his body in front of the president to make himself a target. Fucking heroes, dude. Yeah. Agent McCarthy saved the president from harm by putting his own life at risk and was struck in the abdomen by the fourth bullet. Mm -hmm. His actions and the actions of the team are viewed as the most graphic demonstration of Secret Service training ever seen by the American public. Yeah. Because, you know, we all know, like, the Secret Service is trained to do this, but mm-hmm. it's never seen in action. Right. And it's and, cr- and you don't know, like, you never know if it if it'll happen in the split of in the split second that those things are happening. Your mind can do a million different things. Fuck. Yeah. So you don't know if, like, would they really do that yeah. shit? You know? Yeah. But these guys, they fucking. But you know came what it up. is? It's I think it's like they're trained. They trained and they train and they train and they train. So then it's mm-hmm. like you, you don't think you just do what you've been trained to do, which is like. Y- yeah. Like. Know. All the little documentaries and news stories I saw on this happening because they have film footage of this all going down and all of the they always like interview retired Secret Service agents. They're always like, this is what you're trained to do. Like, Mm -hmm. this is like exactly what the training is for. Mm -hmm. And it's like a perfect demonstration of it. Yeah. Agent McCarthy literally took a bullet to protect the president. It's like Mm -hmm. fucking crazy. Yeah. Agent Parr's reaction also saved President Reagan from being hit in the head when he pushed his head down mm-hmm. and it shoved him into the limo. He mi- he missed the shot that hit the limousine. The fifth the bullet limousine. The limousine. <laughs> the fifth bullet hit the limousine's bulletproof window. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the sixth bullet ricocheted off the limo and hit the president in the left underarm, grazing a rib and lodging in his lung. Yeah. This shot caused the president's lung to partially collapse and stopped less than an inch from hitting his heart. That's the one. And remember that Reagan, up until that point, I think was the oldest president ever elected. Yeah, he is. Trump is first now. Yeah. But yeah, Reagan is old as fuck, dude. He's seven. So he's 70 when this goes down. Yeah. So, but like, you don't want to be, you don't want to be a 25 year old and have this shit happen to you, but you fuck sure no, but shit don't want to be a 70 year old. Fuck no, you don't. Exactly. Alfred Antonucci, a labor official standing by Hinckley, saw him pull the gun out and punched him in the fucking head. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And then that fool pulled him to the ground. And within two seconds, Secret Service agent Dennis McCarthy dove onto Hinckley as other citizens started piling on top of him. Yeah. The Secret Service immediately realized that they had to stop what had happened to Lee Harvey Oswald as the surrounding public Mm -hmm. began to attack Hinckley on the ground. Yeah. So they were like, they're going to fucking kill this fool, you know? Mob justice. Yeah, dude. In doing so, the Secret Service had to injure and detain citizens to stop them from fucking up Hinckley. One of the first things discovered was that the gun was loaded with Devastator brand cartridges, Mm -hmm. 
which contain lead explosive charges designed to explode on contact. The fuck? What? Why are those even a thing? I don't know, man. Like, why are you so fucking extra, yeah. Manson? Only one of the six bullets fired had actually exploded. So all of the hospital staff, including doctors and nurses who removed bullets Ooh, in surgery. Yeah. They had to be volunteers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all had to wear bulletproof gear. Wow. Yeah. While in the limousine, the Secret Service confirmed President Reagan, codenamed Rawhide, mm -hmm. safety, and they headed toward the White House medical facilities as they didn't want to face an unsecured hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, the president was coughing up blood in the limo, so Agent Parr took initiative and decided, never mind, let's divert to George Washington University Hospital, which was the closest hospital. Yeah. Simultaneously, three minutes after the attack, the limo carrying the president arrived at the hospital. John Hinckley was taken to jail and Nancy Reagan, codename Rainbow, left the White House to meet her husband. That's my favorite codename. <laughs> that's that's uh, Holly Madison's daughter. <laughs> Rainbow and Rawhide are together. Rainbow and Rawhide are together. <laughs> the news immediately spread across the country and Jody found out that John had been the one to attempt to assassinate the president because her dean called her to let her know. Oh, so she she wasn't like she knew who that was. Like, you know what yeah, I mean? She, she was because he signed his name. Okay, John Hinckley. Okay. So she heard she, as soon as she hears that name, she's like, fuck. Yeah, yeah. So she had she said she was on campus and everybody was saying uh, the president was shot. The president yeah. was shot. But she didn't know anything about it. So then the dean calls her. Oh, my Police, God. I just got chills. Right. Yeah. Police contacted Yale immediately upon arresting John because inside of his pockets were pictures of Jodie Foster with her Yale address. Oh, fuck. Oh, my God. Ew. I know when Jody confirmed his name, she knew it was him. And she yeah. said she fucking lost it. Like she was like, holy shit. Yeah. And the FBI immediately came to pick her up to talk about her experiences with John. Yeah. And you don't know, there could be a bomb at her dorm. There could Fuck like, yeah. God. Oh. Imagine like someone, because I bet like if you're Jody and this is happening to you with that guy, I bet you tell yourself like it's nothing. He's like, harmless. Just to, to comfort yourself. Yeah. And then it's like your worst fucking nightmare. Right, right. Oh, fuck. Okay. When they arrived at the hospital, President Reagan insisted on walking inside without the aid of his agents or hospital staff or hospital staff to ensure the public's calm. Mm -hmm. He walked in casually and smiled to onlookers from a distance. Mm -hmm. Once inside, his knees buckled and he collapsed. Wow. The physician to the president demanded that the hospital's trauma team operate on the president as they would any other patient in order to keep protocol as normal as possible. Mm -hmm. He believed that this would have better chances of the president's survival than the president's personal team stepping into this unknown space and trying to navigate under pressure. Yeah, and also the president's team, no matter, they could be like the top of their field in, in medicine or whatever, they're not trauma, they're not fuck no they're not physicians. doing this shit like these people do this shit all yeah. the time yeah. like they're fucking you know they're fresh yeah these fools are rusty mm -hmm. allegedly when the hospital medical team cut his suit the president was real pissed because <laughs> it was his nice suit <laughs> rainbow got me this suit <laughs> president rawhide's vital <laughs> tests showed blood pressure levels indicating that he was in shock okay and again like may said President Reagan was not a young man by any means. Uh -huh. Most other 70-year-olds would not have survived this attack. Mm -hmm. But President Reagan was in excellent health. Yeah. 
When First Lady Nancy Reagan, codename Rainbow, arrived at the hospital, President Reagan's first words to her were, honey, I forgot to duck. (laughs) Which is cool as fuck. Yeah. But even cooler because this is famously what heavyweight champion boxer Jack Dempsey said to his wife the night he was beaten by Gene Tunney. (laughs) Isn't that fucking tight? That's so tight. I thought you were going to say, honey, I shrunk the kids. (laughs) No. (laughs) It was later confirmed by experts that the team's quick action and his agent's decision to drive to the hospital instead of the White House saved President Reagan's life. Mm -hmm. After 30 minutes of emergency trauma care, his blood pressure leveled out and they were able to take him into surgery. Okay. Allegedly, when they first took President Reagan into the operating room, he joked to the staff, I hope you are all Republicans. (laughs) (laughs) The head surgeon, who was a Democrat quickly quipped that today mr president we're all republicans that's my favorite that's my favorite part that's the most memorable memorable part of the story for me i always i always think of those two lines when i think about this story yeah the staff and surgeons were able to successfully remove the bullet from his body he did suffer from a fever post-operatively which had to be treated with antibiotics while he remained in the hospital recovering meanwhile dot 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 Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get too into this because this episode could literally take fucking forever. <laughs> what What's going on at the White House? Yes, the White House went into disarray. Within five minutes of the president being shot, the cabinet was inside of the situation room. Yeah. The government prepped for a transfer of presidential powers under the 25th Amendment mm-hmm. and Vice President George H.W. Bush received news while he was in the air in Texas. Mm-hmm. When asked by the press as to who was running the government white mm-hmm. house stand-in press secretary larry speaks responded i'm in charge I cannot- here. <laughs> <laughs> no he said i cannot answer that question at this time oh, okay i'm thinking of somebody else uh-huh okay. you're thinking of um secretary of state yeah okay <laughs> alexander hay oh, yeah, yeah what a fucking <laughs> idiot yeah i didn't write that in here but yeah that fool <laughs> it was something like that too like they were in the press room and and right. after that guy said i can't answer that question at this time he, he rushed, said something like that fool rushes Haig rushes the podium and then he's like like it's all slappy he's like uh i'm in charge here and i feel like everybody laughed at him right i think it was more of a nervous laughter and by the way yeah he was fourth to the throne so he needs to relax rainbows ahead of him everybody yeah come on now Oh, my God. Could you imagine Nancy Reagan as our president? She'd be having tea with fucking Canada's the fucking Canada's prime minister. The military's alert level was raised and people were fucking shook. Yeah. The Dow Jones dropped. The New York Stock Exchange closed early and the Academy Awards was postponed. Wow. Yeah. The president was being pushed to recover very quickly. Mm hmm. The government did not want him to appear weak because, you know, it's bad for business. Yeah. He went home on the 13th day and signed legislation while he was in the hospital recovering. Mm. He didn't lead a cabinet meeting until day 26, didn't leave Washington until day 49, and wouldn't hold a press conference until day 79. And this was all during President Reagan's first year in office. Wow. Okay. But also, by all means, this is lightning speed recovery for a 70-year-old man who just... yeah. Yeah, got shot in trauma and was operated on. Wow. President Reagan's approval rating fucking skyrocketed after this event. Mm -hmm. The press loved him, America loved him, and the government applauded his strength and stability throughout the whole ordeal. Mm -hmm. 
honestly, I fucking applaud him for this shit because all the stories you read about him during this whole endeavor are really like delightful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. he's very co- he's very concerned with everybody else mm-hmm. before himself, including the American people. You know, he's got that he's got that actor's charm. He's an actor, yeah, he, you know. Yeah, he always tries to put people at ease. You you work the room. Yeah. After this event, he met with Pope JP two baby. And he said he believed God saved his life to fulfill a greater purpose. Agent Parr also believed that God directed him to save the president and he became a pastor. Did the, was the Pope, had he already been shot at this point? Yes. Like, were they trading war stories? Like, dude, when <laughs> I, I was so. shot. <laughs> hey, man, did you forgive your would-be assassin? <laughs> I never found anything about Reagan commenting on, on John. Mm. Yeah. I tried to because I always think about that when JP2 was like, he kissed that guy's feet yeah. in jail, right? Mm-hmm. After he shot him. And I, I wanted to see, like, did Reagan say anything about this fool? But no, he never did. First Lady Nancy, codename Rainbow, was also very changed by the event and feared often for her husband's safety. Oh, yeah. She she asked him personally not to run for re-election. Mm-hmm. And I say personally not because, like, she did it herself instead of a secretary. But I mean right. that I believe she asked him please don't run for me. Right. And they really is, loved each other. Fuck yeah, they did. Remember that his um his diary or his journal entries are mm-hmm. public yeah. published and the day that she died, he wrote something really sad like the light of my life has left. No, wait. She died after him. She did? Yeah. Who am I thinking of? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was that's true. They published his diaries and stuff. Oh, they did? Yeah. Okay. Aww. R.I.P. The most seriously wounded victim from this event was press secretary James Brady, who was shot in the head. Mm -hmm. During the confusion following the event, several media outlets reported that James Brady had died. Mm -hmm. During the hours-long operation that he underwent after the shooting, his surgeon, Dr. Arthur Cobrine, was advised of the media's announcement of James's death, to which he responded, quote, nobody has told me or the patient. (laughs) Was he also at George Washington? At the same hospital Ooh. as Yeah, they were they were all treated at the same hospital. Okay. Ooh shit. Damn. They were I know. They had a busy day. That was mm-hmm. okay. But James survived while sustaining wounds that left him with slurred speech, partial paralysis, and wheelchair bound for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. He remained as press secretary during the Reagan administration, but this was like just a title because obviously he didn't actually work much after that. Yeah. In two thousand, the White House in 2000 yeah 2000 <laughs> in 2000 the white house press briefing room was renamed in his honor oh that's dope mm-hmm. and also the the brady bill yeah i'm gonna oh, get okay. into that uh james brady and his wife became leading advocates for gun control and activists for the reduction of gun violence in the united states brady even lobbied for stricter handgun control and for assault weapon restrictions to place this in time, the assassination attempt of President Reagan was one year after the assassination of John Lennon. Wow. So gun control was a hot topic, as always, briefly, mm-hmm. in the United States. In 1993, the Brady Handgun Violence Preve- Prevention Act was passed into law by President Bill Clinton, which mandated federal background checks on firearm purchasers in the United States and imposed a five-day waiting period on purchases. Mm-hmm. James Brady died in 2014 at the age of 73 and his death was ruled a homicide 
33 years after the shooting as what? he ultimately succumbed to the wounds from the shooting. No way. That's crazy. Isn't that fucking crazy? I wonder yeah. if, the, if that's common. No, it's not. It's like that's you see that written everywhere because everybody's always like, yeah, fuck. That's insane. But like they literally couldn't know. They didn't know what else to write. Yeah. And also, man, good for him for living so long after that and also devoting yeah. his life to that. That's he's a good ass dude. Hell yeah, he is. We need more dudes like that. Yeah. Okay, so Hinckley was immediately arrested at the scene of the crime. He was charged with 13 crimes and very obviously guilty of those 13 crimes with over two dozen witnesses and the shootings having been Mm -hmm. captured on videotape. Yeah. His defense attorney used the only plausible defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm. Hinckley was transferred to a North Carolina federal penitentiary to undergo psychiatric evaluation for the next four months by psychiatrists for both sides. The psychiatrist reports for the prosecution all said, drum roll, please. He crazy. Sane. Oh, <laughs> oh, the prosecution? Yes. Yeah. And the psychiatrist for the defense side all said, yeah. drum roll, please. Insane. Yeah. While in prison, Hinckley attempted suicide once by overdosing on Valium and a second time by trying to hang himself in his cell. Oh, fuck. Hinckley insisted that his team get Jodie Foster to testify in his trial and said that he would not cooperate in his own defense if they didn't. Jodie ultimately agreed, but she testified in a closed session via audio tape only. The tape was introduced into evidence and John was allegedly ecstatic. Like everybody says that during the trial, he was like slumped over in his chair. Like he didn't care and he didn't want to testify and shit. But when they rolled in like the TV to hear Jody's testimony that he fucking stood up all straight and like fixed himself up to try to like look good. Yeah. When Jody was audioed in, he was very, very disappointed because at the end of everything, they asked Jody, quote, how would you describe your relationship with John Hinckley? To which she answered, quote, I don't have any relationship with John Hinckley. Mm-hmm. He hurled a pen at the screen and yelled, I'll get you, Foster. Oh, whoa. He was then surrounded by officers and hauled from the room. That's terrifying. Isn't that fucking scary? Oh, my God. John's <laughs> parents. I feel real bad for John's parents, by the way. Yeah. They... It- they like Ugh. they they went through a lot with him and it seems like they weren't neglectful parents or anything they did their fucking best they did they probably did what best. anyone would have done how the fuck are they supposed to know that this nobody thinks that this would happen yeah. you know it never happens jo- uh president reagan's the only president to survive an assassination attempt oh john's parents both testified at trial and it's really really heartbreaking his dad tries to take all of the blame for the event. Like while he's being questioned, he tries to say that it's all his fault, saying that he pushed John too hard to stabilize himself and become independent. And he should have known that John wasn't ready to do it, that he pushed him. And that's what led to this. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. That's You can't blame yourself. You, you, no, you'll you just definitely destroy can't. yourself if you do that. Of course. The defense argued that Hinckley had a lack of identity, which led him to snatch fragments of a personality from books and movies like Travis mm-hmm. Bickle from Taxi Driver. Yeah. When his parents last kicked him out, they said he lost his very last link to the real world. The defense closed their case with a complete showing of the movie Taxi Driver. What the fuck? 
that's fucking crazy, right? <laughs> I kind of want to be on that jury because right? that would, I would be have been all right. <laughs> <laughs> just, do we get popcorn or? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> are we gonna watch it 15 times um <laughs> the judge advised the jury that the prosecution had to show hinkley was not insane beyond a reasonable doubt and after three days of deliberation john hinkley was found not guilty by reason of insanity for all 13 counts on june 21st 1982 yeah a poll taken on the day of the verdict showed that 83 percent of the american public believed justice had not been achieved the public pressure resulting from all of this resulted in Congress and several states later enacting major reforms to the law's governing use of the insanity defense. But if not him, who? You know, like... What do you mean? Like, um, what... If he's not insane, who the fuck is? Yeah. I think they... Because it's not just that you're insane. It's that your insanity... Like, you have to not understand what you're doing... Mm-hmm. And you have to, like, not understand, like, basically they said he's insane, but he knew what the fuck he was doing. Like, he knew he was committing murder. You know the you difference have to between be... right or wrong, and then later, exactly. you ha- and you have to understand the charges brought against you. It's mens rea, basically. Yeah. Like, you had a motive, and, like, you knew what the fuck you were doing, whereas, like, other people are so insane that they don't realize what they're doing. Remember that woman that said the devil was telling her to fucking drown her babies and she didn't really and like that woman i kind of see it in her like where it's like she doesn't realize what the fuck she's doing but they're like he knew he was killing the president like he wanted Uh to kill the president okay so that's what they were trying to say and that's when they like made the laws a a way harder to use which i don't know if i agree with that too right like you said like if not him then who you know and like i don't know anyways John Hinckley was transferred to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, where he was required to stay in treatment until it was proven that he was no longer a threat to both himself or the public. Mm -hmm. In 1987, Hinckley requested home visits, but when they searched his room, they found photos and letters indicating a continued unhealthy obsession with Jodie Foster. Oh, hell no. So this is now five years after the trial. Oh, fuck. I'll get you, Foster. No. Yeah, fuck that. They also found correspondence between him and serial killer Ted Bundy. Oh, fuck that. Isn't that fucking scary? Mm-hmm. In 1999, he was granted supervised home visits. In 2003, John Hinckley was entitled to unsupervised visits with his parents. In 2007, he was, grant- he was denied extended visits up to one month with his parents. But on September 10th, 2016, a judge ruled that John was no longer a threat to himself and others, and he was ordered to release, <gasps> limiting his residence to Southern Virginia, prohibiting contact with past or present presidents, banning <laughs> contact with Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. and prohibiting watching of violent movies, TV, or online digital materials. How do you police that? Exactly. And also, what kind of facility was he in all those years? Was A mental institution. Like a straight up, like, padding on yeah. the walls type. Uh-huh. So this is my thing. How seriously ill was he that he had to be in treatment for uh, 34 years? Yeah. 34 Like, he was found not guilty and they still kept him for 34 years. Yeah. And then what? I feel like he would have got much less if they would have just found him guilty. <laughs> oh, really? Nah. Yeah, he probably would have got like 15 years, maybe. Oh, because nobody died? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
Jodie Foster suffered tremendously from this time in her life. The judge ruled that she was innocent in the case, obviously, but it subjected her to intense media attention. Mm -hmm. She was unable to continue her studies without the aid of bodyguards on Yale's campus. Oh, God. And she later had a second stalker during her years oh, at Yale. fuck. Her mom, um, I read somewhere that her mom begged her to drop out yeah. and go live with her because she was so worried about her. Yeah. Jody has tried to comment very little about this experience, but she did write an essay published in Esquire magazine entitled Why Me, where she talks about starting college, her stalker, mm -hmm. the trial, and her feelings about death and acting. Oh, I want to read the, that. It's really good. The article dropped with no cover lines, no publicity, and no photos. Mm -hmm. In 1991, she canceled an interview on NBC's Today Show when she found out that John Hinckley was going to be mentioned in the intro. In 1999, one of the only times she's ever talked about it publicly, on 60 Minutes, she said, I don't like to dwell on it. It didn't have anything to do with me. I was a hapless bystander, but what a scarring, strange moment in history for me to be 18 years old and caught up in that drama. Yeah. She also emphasized that however difficult this was for her, James Brady and his family were the ones who suffered the most and no one's experience could compare to that family's. Mm -hmm. After Jody graduated, she struggled to find work for a bit, but had a breakthrough comeback role in October 1988 when she played a rape survivor in the movie The Accused. Mm -hmm. The movie was a hit, and her performance received widespread acclaim. After this came The Silence of the Lamb. Lambs? Lambs. Lambs. <laughs> and she cemented herself in the acting world. Most recently in this decade, Jodi has focused on directing and taking less acting roles. She's directed episodes of Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, and Black Mirror. She made no comments upon the release of John Hinckley from the institution in 2016. She has two sons who she raises outside of the public eye, and she was married to photographer and Ellen DeGeneres' ex, Alexandra Hedison, in 2014. Hey. And that's the story of the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. Wow. We're all Republican. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we're not all Republican. That was awesome stuff. I really like how you put that together because I think, like you said, that we're never going to talk about everything, but. Fuck no, dude. It's so much. No, that was great. Thanks. That was really fun for me. I had fun. But I also got scared last night. I was like, all right, I got to stop reading about this fool. Yeah. Because he's Cause out there. A lot of yeah, and there's a lot of creepy pictures of him, like, just, like, black and white, yeah, like, with yeah. the gun to his head. It's fucking scary. Ugh. We'll post some. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hell no. <sighs> well, thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to hear us do more stories like this or you got a story you want us to do, feel free to email us at dramaclubpod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Insta and Twitter at dramaclubpod. Hit us up on the hotline, 505. Five five. I don't know it. <laughs> five oh five five three nine oh five five six. And tell your mama about it. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Bye guys. However, whatever with your helmet.